0: Uh, Before we open uh, God's Word, I want to just take a a few moments to thank you uh, for your prayers and cards and food on behalf of uh, me and Kathy as we recovered from our little bout of COVID. I'm happy to report after nearly two weeks of uh, just laying on the couch, uh, mindlessly watching television and not actually even realizing what was going on basically uh, we're feeling much better. We're back to our uh, regular activities. And I also want to uh, thank all of you and, and for those of you at home for the many prayers and, and cards and, and flowers and, and food that you provided for my mom, Dolly, and my dad, Mike, while my mom was in the hospital for nearly uh, four weeks. Uh, she uh, came home on the 4th. The uh, she still is uh, very frail. She's, uh, she's struggling pretty greatly. I'm sure mom, hi mom, you're watching at home right now, I'm sure. Uh, and I would really appreciate if you would continue uh, to pray for her. She has a, a pretty long road of recovery ahead of her. Kathy and I have uh, basically moved in with them right now to uh, help. We don't know whether we'll be there for a week or a month or for the next year. My mom's probably like, I don't want that kid in there for another year. Uh, But please, if you would continue to pray for them, we would uh, greatly appreciate that. Uh, In times like these, uh, it's just a reminder of what an amazing church family that we have. Uh, You folks are so incredibly uh, generous and kind and loving, and uh, it is a privilege to be able to uh, minister and serve to such an extraordinary uh, group of people. So thank you so much. Uh, Over the last four weeks we have been covering uh, what God's Word has to say about some of the more uh, challenging issues that our society and our culture uh, face right now. Uh, Prior to me getting sick with COVID, I kicked off the series uh, dealing with uh, the issue of divorce and what God's Word has to say about that. And then Pastor Ben, the the following week, uh, courageously and graciously spoke about the, the heart of racial reconciliation, uh, which uh, was um, to be immediately followed by me doing a message on what was going to be called the, the heart of racial reconciliation. And unfortunately, that, that's when I got sick. And uh, Pastor Ben was uh, kind enough uh, to quickly prepare a, a message that he hadn't even had an opportunity to to study for at any time other than the week leading up to that message. And uh, he did it on uh, the whole idea of using our speech uh, for the glory of God and the good of others. And then last week, uh, Mike B. did an extraordinary job dealing with a very, very difficult topic of suicide. And now that I'm healthy, I I want to return to the original plan that we had to talk about the heart of racial reconciliation. Now, uh, before I do that, I want to uh, offer a disclaimer. And I want to make something uh, abundantly clear to everyone who's here in this room, to those who are are watching live at home right now, and to those who ultimately uh, watch this service sometime later in in the next week or so. Uh, This is a very charged topic. And over the years, I have had hundreds of conversations with people who have all kinds of different perspectives on what racial reconciliation looks like, how it works, what the Bible has to say about that. Some of those conversations have been difficult and passionate, and I've tried my very best to teach people with, or treat people with with love and kindness in the midst of those conversations. Sometimes I have succeeded at that to the glory of God. Other times I have failed miserably uh, to my own shame. And as we work through these messages, there are going to be some of you in in our church family who we've had conversations about some of these things before. And and what you might think is that I'm speaking directly to you during a, a, a specific portion of this message. Please, please, please do not make that faulty assumption. As we work through this message, uh, I'm going to try very, very hard to communicate directly from God's Word. And uh, what you're going to hear is the product of me dealing with gospel-centered racial reconciliation for the last 20 years. And if something pricks your spirit here today, I would humbly ask that you consider that it may have far more to do with the Holy Spirit speaking to you at this moment than it has to do with some past conversation that you and I might have had some time ago. And I would humbly ask that you might consider that. You may in the end say, hey, you know, Mike is is taking a shot at me, and I'm here to tell you that's not what I'm doing, uh, but I can't control what people think. For the last 20 years, living water has had two primary focuses. The first and most important has been, is... And will continue to be to boldly proclaim and unwaveringly point people to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ as the exclusive means in which sinful people, people like you and me, are reconciled to the holy God of the universe. Now make no mistake about it. There is nothing more important than this. Without the gospel, without God incarnating himself in in the God-man Jesus Christ, without Jesus' sinless life, without him going to the cross, without Jesus taking upon himself his Father's righteous and infinite wrath against your sin and my sin, without Jesus' victorious resurrection from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all, without all of that, we would have absolutely no hope of being made right with God. Jesus and Jesus alone is our sole source of forgiveness for sin and our sole source of justification before God the Father. Now, secondly, we have, we are, and we will continue to boldly proclaim and unwaveringly challenge people to actively live out the gospel by seeking to reconcile themselves to one another, be it wives to husbands. Parents to children, coworkers to coworkers, neighbors to neighbors, church member to church member, or enemy to enemy. And by doing these two things, proclaiming the gospel and subsequently living out the gospel, we seek to obey Jesus' great command that is recorded in Matthew 22 that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart all of your soul, and all of your mind, and that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and all of the prophets. And I want us to take a moment to think about what Jesus is actually saying in those words. You see, everything that is is contained in God's Word, all of the theology, all of the doctrine, all of the history, all of the prophecies, all, all of the prayers and all of the worship, everything from in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth to the very last verse in Revelation, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all Amen. All of that is completely dependent upon our loving God and our loving others. So it shouldn't surprise us when the Apostle John declares in 1 John 4, we love because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, And hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen, and this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now sadly, what I have discovered over these last 20-plus years of doing ministry in general. And what I've discovered over these last four years in particular is that many people who claim that they love God struggle greatly to love their fellow Christian brothers and sisters. There is... A divisive tribalism that has infiltrated Christianity. It's a tribalism that is built on fear, built on pride, and built on ignorance. It's a tribalism that is unwilling to consider others better than themselves. It's a tribalism that is fueled by social media and YouTube videos. It's a tribalism that that disguises itself under the banner of discernment, or justice, or theological purity, or one of a million other seemingly noble causes. It's a tribalism whose primary weapon is shame. And it's a tribalism that proclaims grace with its mouth but heaps condemnation with its actions. And nowhere is this tribalism more apparent than when it comes to the issue of race and racial reconciliation. Rather than humbling ourselves, examining our own hearts, Patiently listening to the perspectives and experiences of others, and then lamenting over the pain and suffering that has been inflicted upon them, rather than, than crying out for wisdom and understanding rather than submitting ourselves to the the authority of God's word and and praying that that God would bring unity to his people, rather than than living out the beautiful words of Romans chapter 12, we instead label people as too liberal or too conservative, as, as woke or not woke, as oppressor, or social justice warrior. And we do it all in an effort to self-justify ourselves, to justify our actions, to justify our prejudice, to somehow prove our worth, our orthodoxy, and our allegiance to our tribe and its leaders. Leaders of which many of us have have never met. Leaders who've never prayed for us. Leaders who've never personally rejoiced with us in our, our victories or who have wept with us in our failures. Leaders who will never reply to our email. Leaders who we can never ever give a phone call to. Leaders who are nothing more than a a voice on a podcast or an image on a video. And then we wonder, why are people so angry? Why is God's church more divided than ever? And why are those who are are seeking answers in this very broken, dark world not interested in what we have to say. I pray today as we talk about this very challenging subject that we might abandon our tribes. And I pray that we would cast aside our efforts to self-justify ourselves and allow our hearts to be radically changed by God's Word. With that said, let me attempt to provide you with a a biblical framework on the issue of racial reconciliation. I have four main points. I'm going to give them to you right up front, and then I will briefly expound upon them. The first is this race is a reality. It sounds simple, but we need to understand that race is a reality. Number two is this sin separates. Number three, pride perpetuates. And number four, grace eradicates. Race is a reality. Sin separates. Pride perpetuates. And grace eradicates. First one, race is a reality. When it comes to the the topic of race, racial reconciliation, justice, and the like— There are are some Christians who question whether or not there is any biblical support for speaking of people belonging to different races. And their thought process, it goes something like this. If there is only one race, the human race, then it is not appropriate or helpful to speak of people belonging to different races. After all, if there is only one race, if there is nothing uh, inherently different about people, then all we have to do is focus upon unity as people made in the image of God, and all of the so-called racial problems that we have in society will ultimately go away. If there's only one race, and if all we have to do is focus on unity, all the the problems that seem to be made up, I guess, in the world will ultimately go away. And while this would be wonderful, the reality is the Bible speaks not only of humanity belonging to one race, but it also speaks of different races of people. Now what I'm going to share with you, I learned from a fellow by the name of Guy Richard. He is a PhD professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. In Acts 17, we clearly see that the whole of humanity belongs to one race. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and bound and the boundaries of their dwelling places. The Greek word that has been translated nations is ethnos. It's where we get the term, the English term, ethnicity. And throughout the, the New Testament, ethnos, is most often translated Gentiles, but it's also translated nation, as in this case, or people. And so what we learn from this particular passage is that all people, every one of us, regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of our life experiences, regardless of where we have come from, are ultimately Descendants of our earthly forefather Adam. Now, if we go just a couple more verses there in Acts 17, we discover something very interesting. Look at the next verses 28 and 29. For in him, this is the Apostle Paul making an an argument. he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets, these are Greek poets, have said, For we are indeed his offspring. But then, God's offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Now, the Greek word that is translated offspring is genos which is also translated in the New Testament as kind, family, or race. It's where we get the term genocide from. When a bunch of crazy people decide that they're going to wipe out an entire race of people. And what Paul is saying here is that we are all God's kind. We are all part of God's race. Which points us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which tells us that humanity is created in the image of God. And so to summarize, Acts 17 teaches us that all people belong to one all-encompassing kind or race, God's race. But that's not all that God's Word has to say about race. Look at 1 Peter 2, a very familiar passage, one that we cling to with every fiber of our being as Christians. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There are those words again. Genos, race. Ethnos, nations. So what is Peter telling us? This is remarkable. This is what Peter is saying. Peter is telling us that Christians are considered to be a unique race or kind. So it's not only biblical to speak about humanity belonging to one race or ethnicity, it's also biblical to speak of Christians belonging to one race. Or an ethnicity. So you got the whole of humanity belonging to one race or ethnicity. You've got a subset of humanity, Christians, belonging to to a, a different race. In other words, Christians are a distinct race and a distinct ethnicity from the balance of humanity. But the New Testament doesn't stop there. Genos pops up in in all kinds of places throughout the New Testament. And in the process, it shows us that there are different races or kinds of people within the human race. Look at Mark chapter 7. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. There's the Greek word... Genos again. This time it's translated birth. What is Mark telling us? He's telling us that the woman is of the Syrophoenician kind or race. Go to Acts chapter 4. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Once again, Genos shows up, this time translated native. Barnabas was of the kind or the race of Cyprus. Here's another one, Acts chapter 18. And Paul found a a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Genos shows up again. This time it's translated native again. Aquila is of the kind or the race of Pontus. In the words of Dr. Richard, the point is that the Bible clearly advocates something that is very similar to the modern day concept of race and indicates that there are many different genos or races that exist Within humanity. In other words, race as we know it is not just some sociological concept, it also has a biblical basis. And as such, it's okay to recognize that there are different races in the world. It's also okay to recognize that sadly, certain races have been and are being horribly mistreated in the world. And it's just not African Americans living in the United States. In the 30s, it was the Jews living in Nazi Germany and the territories and the countries that they took over. At the same time, there were the Poles and the Finns and the Estonians and the Romanians and the Greeks and the Chinese and the Ukrainians who were radically persecuted by Stalin. The numbers that he killed are incalculable. And then there's the Tutsis and the Hutus in Rwanda. And at this very moment, Southern Nigerian Christians being murdered by northern Nigerian Muslims. You see, folks, make no mistake about it. Race is a reality. And when people are mistreated because of their race, as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who have been called to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with our God, we actually have to do something about it. So the question becomes this, then why in the world, or what's the reason why people are treated so poorly because of their race? Why why does this happen? What is behind the need for, for reconciliation? The simple answer is sin. Which brings me to my second point. In Genesis 1 and 2, we find a world that is much different than the world that you and I live in right now. It's a perfect world, a world where everything was good, where there was no death, there was no sickness, no disease, no pain, no discord, no hatred, where the first man and the first woman who have been created in the image of God, are living in perfect harmony with one another and who are living in perfect harmony with God. Things are so perfect, so unified, so innocent, that Genesis 2 ends with these words. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But then, something horrific happens in Genesis chapter 3. Satan, the evil one, in the form of a serpent, ushers sin into the world by deceiving the first woman with a man at her side in such a way that she disobeys God, and from that point forward, the wheels come off. The man and the woman immediately discover that they are naked. They become ashamed of their nakedness and they seek to cover themselves. Worse yet, in in fear, they decide that they need to actually hide from God. And when confronted by God about their sin, rather than taking responsibility, the man blames God And blames the woman. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the woman goes and blames the serpent. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, notice what sin has done. Sin has broken the relationship between humans and God. But it's also broken the relationship between the man and the woman. But it gets worse. When you go to Genesis 4, this this alienation, this broken relationship leads to violence when, when, when Cain, one of the offspring of the first man and first woman, in a jealous rage, kills his brother Abel. And things progressively get worse by the time we get to Genesis 6. And at that point, God's done. He's tolerated things for for too long. His patience, which is infinite, has reached some kind of limit. However infinite patience can reach a limit, it has. And this is what it says, the Lord God saw the wickedness of... Of the man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out the man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and, we- man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And that is exactly what God does. God destroys all of the inhabitants of the earth except for Noah and his immediate family with a great flood. And when the waters recede, God starts over with words very similar to that which he first spoke to Adam and Eve. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sadly, not even a flood can kill sin. And rather than obeying God's command to multiply and fill the earth, the people decide to do things their own way. You see, ultimately, the people, they want to be God. And in Genesis 11, we see what happens. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What motivates these men and women, these descendants from Noah, to build this city and tower? It's their pride. It's their desire to live outside of God's will, to control their own destiny. They want to make a name for themselves. So in their pride, they take matters in their own hands. And this brings me to my third point. Pride perpetuates separation. You see, it was the pride of the people that drove them to rebel against God, and this is God's response, Genesis eleven five, 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You see, as a result of their continuing sin, God restricts their ability to communicate with one another by confusing their languages, after which he scatters them into individual tribes or people groups or nations or races or whatever word that you want to use. And he spreads them out through northern Africa, the Middle East, Asia Minor, and Eastern Europe. And through the balance of the Old Testament, we see the results of humanity's sin and pride. People are enslaved. Women and children are exploited. Wars are waged. Genocide is committed. Let me introduce to you one of those people groups, one of those races. They were called the Samaritans. We read about them first in Kings, second Kings chapter 17. At this point in, in the Old Testament history, the Assyrian nation has, has conquered the northern tribes of Israel. And they had taken the leading Israelite citizens and deported them throughout the Assyrian kingdom. And then the Assyrians, to, to backfill the people who they've pulled out of the northern kingdom of Israel, to decide to import a bunch of people from Mesopotamia. And these Mesopotamians, they, they bring with them their own gods and their own religious practices. And because these people worshiped foreign gods, we're told in 2 Kings 17 that God sends lions to kill a lot of these people. And and the words of their death make their way back to the Assyrian king, and the Assyrian king is like, whoa, this God is not messing around. I've got to do something about this. I can't have all these people that have spent all this money to bring them down from Mesopotamia to get wiped out by lions. And so he decides, hey, I've got a lot of Jewish priests that I've taken from from the northern kingdom and brought to Assyria. I'm going to send one of these Jewish priests back, and he's basically going to evangelize the Mesopotamians. He's going to tell them about the Jewish faith and about the Torah and about God and all of these things. And so that's what happens. This priest goes back, and over time, these Mesopotamian colonists, they incorporate Jewish religious traditions into their own religious traditions. It's called syncretism. It's when you bring these different faith systems together and you make basically a new faith system. But they didn't stop there. The the Mesopotamians, they they began to intermarry with the, the Jewish people from the northern kingdom, the Israelites, who had been left behind because there was a subset that was left behind. And this is where you get the Sumerians from. So now you have this people group, a race of intermarried Jews and Mesopotamians who have their own worship practices and traditions. Now you fast forward a couple hundred years to the book of Ezra. The the Babylonians have now come in and they've done the smackdown on the Assyrians. The Babylonians now are in charge. And at some point, the Babylonian king decides that he's going to let the Jews, because now the Babylonian king has has taken care of the southern kingdom too, at some point he decides, I'm going to let the Jews go back to the promised land and let them rebuild the city of Jerusalem and let them rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And so this is a wonderful thing. And the Jews go back to to the Middle East, to the promised land, to Israel, to Israel. And the Samaritans hear about this and they come to the Jews and they say, This is great that you're back. We missed you so much. We, we want to get involved with rebuilding the city. We want to get reinvolved with, with building the temple. We want to become part of your community. Which the returning Jews say, get lost. You're not really Jews. You weren't faithful when we left. You're half-breeds. You intermarried with the Mesopotamians. We want nothing to do with you. Rejected, the Samaritans head back north, and they build their own temple in a place called Mount Gerizim. But that's not the end of the story. In 128 B.C., about... I don't know, 100 years, 130 years, 122 years, I guess, before Jesus was born. During the silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is a a Jewish high priest. He's also the king. It's called the Maccabees at the time. His name is John Hycanus. And he decides to uh, expand his influence Northern, northward, and so he goes to Mount Gerizim. He destroys the Samaritan temple and takes over that land. And what is the result of all of this? It's called hatred. Hatred which has been stewing for 700 years. And specifically, it's called ethnic hatred or, or, or racial hatred. One group of people hates another group of people because of things that have been done in the past. And so sin is separated and grace has perpetuated, or pride has perpetuated. Let me show you how grace eradicates. Fast forward about 100 plus years. It's the middle of the day. It's high noon. There's a Samaritan woman who has a very illicit and a very public sexual past. And she makes her way to a well that sits at the base of Mount Gerizim, the place where the Jewish king and the high priest had destroyed the Samaritan temple. And everything around her is a reminder that she is an outsider. She's a Samaritan, someone hated by the Jews. She's a woman which is of low order in that day, but she's not just a woman. She's a woman whose life of sin is incredibly well-known to her community, so much so that she's come to the well in the middle of the day so that she can avoid all the rest of the women who come to the well in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. She's an outcast based upon her race, based upon her gender, and based upon her immoral behavior. And before her is the very mountain upon which her religious temple once stood. And now it's a pile of rocks because the Jews had destroyed it. When she arrives at the well, they're this kind of gnarly-looking 30-something Jewish man. And he's all alone because his friends have gone into town to get food. His name is Jesus. He was traveling to Jerusalem, to Galilee, and the Bible tells us in verse 3 and 4 of John 4 that he had to go through Samaria. Jesus left Judea, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you've been around Living Water for any length of time, you know this story because this is where we get the name of our church from. We didn't just pick up Living Water because we thought it was a cool term. There's a reason why there's this name. You see, although that's the shortest route from Judea to Galilee is to go through Samaria. If you are a devout Jew, you never go through the shortest route because you've got to go through a land which is filled with people who you hate. And so devout Jews, when they're leaving Judea, they, they hang a right, they go east, they get on the east side of the Jordan River, go up the east side of the Jordan River. When they get up near Galilee, they hang a left, go west, and they bypassed Samaria. But John 4 tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And that Greek phrase, that he had to pass, indicates a divine necessity, a heavenly imperative. And when Jesus meets this woman at the well, strikes up a conversation, and he asks her for a drink from the well. Everything about this goes against all of the racial and cultural norms of the day. Because Jews and Samaritans were told, have no dealings with one another, let alone drink from a mutual container. And men aren't supposed to at- interact publicly with women, especially women who are known for their illicit, immoral behavior. And in the midst of all of this this posturing, because there's all this posturing that's going on in this passage, in the midst of all this posturing, there's all this talk about worship styles and, and worship locations, and the woman just keeps trying to change the subject because she's embarrassed. And in the end, Jesus, for the very first time, reveals that he is the Messiah, And the woman marvels at what Jesus shares. And in haste, she leaves behind her water jug, the very reason that she had gone to the well in the first place. And she goes back to her people. She tells them that that she has had this encounter with the Messiah because the Samaritans, they were looking for the Messiah just like the Jews were looking for the Messiah. And the entire community comes back with this sinful woman who they wanted nothing to do with to encounter Jesus. And for two days, Jesus pours out upon this woman and upon all of these Samaritans the love of God and the truth of God's word. And in the process, countless Samaritans place their faith in Jesus. Do you see the power of grace Do do you see the power of kindness and the power of intentionality and the power of the proclamation of God's Word? Even Jesus was intentional to reach across racial boundaries. And on a spiritual level, to reconcile this woman vertically with the God of the universe and to ultimately begin to reconcile this woman horizontally with people who thought that she was a terrible person. And John chapter 4 serves as a great illustration to Ephesians chapter 2. Now in Ephesians chapter 2 everybody loves the beginning part of Ephesians chapter 2 because we read these beautiful words for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works how we miss that I'll never know because all of us try to self-justify ourselves All of the time. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those are beautiful words. Our faith is built around that. But look what happens next in Ephesians. The Apostle Paul is speaking to a group of Christians in the town of Ephesus. Ephesus was a melting pot of cultures, of races. There there were Jews and Gentiles, people from all over the world came to Ephesus. And in the process, when Paul planted this church, not only Jews came to faith in Jesus, but also, Samari- or also Gentiles came to faith in Jesus. And now they're trying to figure out how in the world do we get along? And this is what, what Paul says to them. Therefore, and he's speaking right now to the Gentiles. He says, therefore, remember that at one time You Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That's the N-word of the first century, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ Alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world it doesn 't get worse than that we We, we think that the the, the situations that we 're in right now, the way that we're we 're being mistreated or whatever, is bad, and yes, it is i 'm not discounting any of that, but it doesn 't get worse than this because the mistreatment that, we, that people experience here on this earth, it's at least temporal. But this, this is eternal. This doesn't go away. This doesn't get fixed through legislation or kindness or anything like this. And, and, and he's reminding them, he's saying that, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, having no hope without God, and then... Conjunction, junction, what's your function? That beautiful word, but, shows up. Man, sometimes that word can can lead to bad things. Oh, I, I really like you a lot, but I just want to be friends. The story of my dating life. But in this case, it's good. It says what? By now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, both Gentile and Jew, He's made us both one, has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Why? That He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility between Jew and Gentile. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off Gentile. And he came and he preached peace to those who were near Jew. And for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, and who the whole structure being joined together grows into, the holy te- into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are being built together in a dwelling place by God, for God, by the Spirit. What has happened here? Jesus, through His sacrifice on the cross, He has reconciled us to God the Father. And He has offered that reconciliation, which has been secured once and for all. We can't earn it. He, he has offered that to any and all who will confess their sins and receive Jesus Christ in faith. That reconciliation has been done. And that is a beautiful thing. Now the question is, what in the world will you do with that reconciliation? Because this is what God did. God looked down, saw that that people were being persecuted by the evil one. That they were being destroyed by the evil one. That they they were dead and they had no hope. And Jesus engages. He leaves the glory of heaven. He comes to this earth. He loves on people. And then he dies on a cross. Taking upon himself all of the pain that you and I deserve. We have offended Him, yet He's the one who, who pays the price. And brothers and sisters, that is how forgiveness always works. It is the one who has been offended who always pays the cost. It's never the one who's done the offending. Never. When you you are unfaithful to your spouse and your spouse forgives you, your spouse is the one who takes all of the pain. They're the one. Yeah, are you hurt? Yeah, but you created your own hurt. They didn't do jack squat. Yet they take the pain. That's what Jesus has done. He has solved this problem. And now the question is, what do you and I do in response to that? Paul tells us, chapter 4, and we're almost done. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have been called. How does he want us to do this? The exact opposite of how most of us behave. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Man, I would love to meet people like that. So, a lot of people I meet who don't want to do that, they want to divide. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He gives us this picture of us actively working to to create reconciliation with one another. You see, the reconciliation that we want, it's secured. Jesus, he created it. He's done that hard work. to to do this vertical reconciliation. There's nothing for us to do but the horizontal work, the reconciliation between one another. It requires work. It's not just magically going to happen. I can tell you because I spent the last 20 years of my life trying this. And if all you had to do was preach the gospel... and and all the problems are going to go away, and your church is going to reflect the, the diversity of your community. Well, folks, it's not been working very well because there are a lot of churches that are preaching the gospel that don't even look close to their community. It takes risks. It demands understanding and forgiveness and repentance, and it must always overflow with grace. And more than anything, it needs to be centered on the cross of Christ and the word of God because nothing else is sufficient. You see, secular attempts to bring people together will always fail because they are blind to their own sin and prejudice. It's steeped in pride and secular attempts, they, they are always underestimate the utter depth of the sin. Because what secular attempts think, what that people are basically good. The reality is, we're terrible, we're horrible. We're dead in our sins and trespasses apart from Christ. And secular attempts always base themselves on on the basically perceived goodness of at least some people. And what they don't understand is the cost to fix the problem ultimately demands the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it demands. And as such... Racism will never be resolved by becoming woke or striving to be an anti-racist. We will never reconcile people together by by breaking them into groups of oppressor and oppressed. That, That concept is insane. How are you going to bring people together when you do that? We can't cancel our way to eradicating prejudice and rejecting rationalism and embracing some kind of special knowledge of the oppressed, it hasn't worked in the past, and it's not going to work now. Only the cross has the power. Only the cross. And may we humbly fall on our knees before it. And may we faithfully carry the cross for the glory of God and the love of others. I'm done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, you know everything about me. You know everything about the people sitting in this room. You know everything about the people that are watching this on the live stream right now. Father, you know the utter depth of our sin. And yet, heavenly Father, through your love and kindness and grace, you've drawn many of us to yourself. And Lord, we've repented of our sins and we have received your Son and we have been reconciled to you. And Heavenly Father, I pray that that we would never forget that great work that has been done on our behalf by your Son. And Lord, as we go through this world and as we know that, that faith without works is dead, Father, might we do the hard work of looking out and and seeing those who who are are hurting and oppressed. And Lord, might we reach out to them regardless of how different we might be, regardless of whether they, they rebuff us or not. Lord, might we reach out to them with the love of God and the grace of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Lord, so that they might not only ultimately be reconciled to you through the work that only you can do, but Lord, so that we might be reconciled together, so that we truly, truly, one day, Heavenly Father, will be able to reflect that beautiful picture of heaven. Lord, help us, please. And it's through your Son's name we pray, and all God's people say, amen. Would you stand as we